welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the cyber theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King, the Managing Director at Cyber Theory. Today's podcast episode is going to feature Patricia Moyo, who is the a partner at Signwave Ventures in New York City. That's a early stage venture capital firm that's dedicated to helping new technology companies grow across the commercial and public sectors. Pat's been a partner at Signwave for eight years and spent 13 years running R&D for the Department of Defense with a big team of 100 researchers and a lot of different interdisciplinary efforts that hopefully enable national security customers to operate safely in, in compromised environments, compromised environments. So she She's an expert in, has been providing strategic direction for secured wireless and resilient systems and trustworthy computing and security science and cryptography. So in addition to um, earning her undergraduate degree from Fordham, she went on and got a PhD from Yale. So welcome, Pat. I'm glad you were able to join us today. Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's jump right in here. And and before we do anything, can you give our listeners a little background on uh, Signwave and you know what the work that you guys have been doing and what what this year has looked like so far for you guys? Um, sure. So as you had mentioned, Signwave is an early stage venture con- uh, firm dealing with helping companies get into the commercial and government sector. And what we concentrate on are computing, analytic, and cybersecurity companies that you know really help agencies and industries that haven't been traditionally information driven use information safely and, and effectively to influence business and policy decisions. So we have a, a, a small size, but I think mighty impact portfolio of companies in, in those three general areas. In terms of cybersecurity, we've always had an attack agnostic kind of approach. So we don't really invest in companies that aim to you know, address this particular attack vector or, or this particular uh, uh, way of uh, getting into your system, but rather to look for sort of broad-based technologies that enable you to face a, a variety of threats and remain resilient in the face of uh, known and unknown challenges. Our investment size is three to five million typically, and we always invest uh, with the consortium of others uh, trying to build a, a set of investors that really can help the company companies survive. In later rounds or early rounds? Um, early rounds. A is our favorite. We do do some seeds and we do do some Bs. And in the companies that uh, we invest in, we will do follow-on if we like where the company is going, but we don't commit to following on. Um, you know, Each round, we assess them anew. And no particular market emphasis within cybersecurity? No, I I have a particular interest in some of the new zero trust stuff that's emerging. I think um, the new challenges are are at the application layer and at the identification and authentication part of the system. So <laughs> we try to be strategic in the parts of the system um, that that we're looking to to find technologies to fit. Because we're attack agnostic, obviously we're not big into threat identification systems or stuff like that. Yeah, right. I mean, it, that makes sense to me anyway. I, I I think that, you know, companies that approach it from, from an attack point of view are 
it seems very temp. It's just like, okay, that's great for the first, for the next, what, six, 10, 12 months or something. But yeah, what happens really. with what happens when the next attack vector occurs? That's right. Know, so, and you yeah. get just caught up in this game of whack-a-mole. Um, yeah, yeah. You right. can't win. And so there's no reason to, to keep trying to win that way when there are there are other better ways. Yeah. You have a sort of philosophy about getting companies to think more about cyber resilience than cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean by that? So traditionally, particularly with people who have a sort of attack-based approaches to cybersecurity, there's always been this tension that you invest in security at the expense of business objectives, right? You may have to limit what people can do. Um, They may need complicated login procedures. Um, There's always this war between the security capabilities and what needs to get done. With the notion of cyber resilience, um, the idea is that the cyber security technologies actually help your company uh, survive in normal operating conditions, but in conditions where things go wrong, whether that be attack or power outage or um, you know hurricane. The idea is to continue to know enough about your system and to put controls in place that you can continue operating uh, at least your critical functions and have the wearable to quickly build back any of the functions that had to be sort of downgraded because of the the problematic uh, period you were in. Yeah. And, you know, so we approached cybersecurity in different ways. But but if you look across the spectrum, I think there's a mindset around, you know, what we do when we're when we fight a war. You know, we mm-hmm. our experiences, you know, has been we, mili- you know, we <laughs> we military up, we head off into, you know, country A and and we, you know, conquer them and then we come back and the war's over. That's never been true, nor will it ever be true with cybersecurity. So it's really more like a like a police action around crime, right? I mean, you never, you know, so mm-hmm. the assumption should be that there'll always be criminals. Here are like four or five main things that we worry about, you know, homicide and armed, you know, robbery and burglary and et cetera. And we're going to focus on trying to manage those into a, you know, into a resilient model, I I guess. Is that kind of, is that kind of where the mindset is? Yeah, and um, I, I think your point on the war metaphor is extremely well taken, and I personally think the war metaphor has has held back the cybersecurity industry for years. The contrasting metaphor that I like to use is um, health. And it would be, you know, there's always going to be disease. And particularly in time of COVID, I guess this has become a less clear metaphor than it used to be. But, you know, there's always going to be disease, but you wash your hands and you take your vitamins and you eat good food. And when you do get sick, you have drugs that help you get better quickly. But you don't expect that germs are going to be eradicated from the face of the earth, just like you don't expect cyber threats are going to completely disappear. What you want to do is make sure you are not impacted by any of those germs in a way that you can survive. And similarly, you want to make sure you're not impacted by any cyber action in a way that you can't recover from. Agree. Good analogy. And speaking of sort of the eternal fight here, I wrote a book that is in the process of being published this week, and my publisher insisted on calling it Losing the Cyber War. It's focused on five different theaters of war, and we're, you know, my thesis is that we're, we're losing in each one of those, but I offer recommendations for how we can avoid, avoid that and, and get out of it. 
you know, so we spent what 150 billion, I think, in 21, and and we're probably going to spend about 150 ish uh, in in 22 on cybersecurity, and yet the only correlation between what we spend and the attacks or the bre- number of breaches is that they both go up. Uh-huh. If you dropped in from Mars, you'd conclude that our funding is actually increasing the number of cyber attacks that we have to deal with. Are we doomed or what? I, I We are not doomed. And I think we are doomed when we invest in things that solve the wrong problem, right? And so we we do a lot of investment. So, for example, um, there are many, many, many threat tracking technologies, and and it's important that security companies understand how the threats are evolving, where they are, what they are. It's important that governments understand that, and so on. So, that in both cases, you can build defenses, you can do research, you can figure out new uh, and innovative ways to address attacks in general. But here I am, you know, small and medium business. I buy threat tracking thing. I have not a single knob in my system that I can turn if I know a particular threat is in my area to make my system safer. All it does is tell me, oh, you can worry now, which in general, you'd be worried anyhow. If you had a capability, you would have already deployed it in all cases. You're not going to just turn it on when threat X is in the environment. So there's this whole lot of investment in protecting, you know, as I said before, the individual attack or an understanding a threat environment that you then have no capability to do anything about. There's a lot of tools that analyze your system and alert a gazillion times and tell you you have this vulnerability and that vulnerability, but not in a way that enables you to do something about it in real time or to do something about it even in long time. And so that whole mode of chasing after the attacker gives the attacker the advantage and the attacker will ultimately win if that's the mode of of defense we do. Uh, There's a different kind of uh, defense, though, that that I think is, is way more effective that involves basically shaping the game board, right? If the attacker is is coming into an environment that you have set up for you to win and for them to lose, the likelihood of the attack succeeding becomes significantly smaller. So to give an example of that, um, there's a whole lot of technology emerging now in the area of micro-segmentation, which says, all right, we are going to carefully control who in what system can talk to you know, what other assets in the system and, 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 you know, how logically lay out the network according to the business rules so that only legitimate types of um, interactions can happen. So if an attacker comes in as, you know, they do a phishing and they come in as me average person, they'll only be able to get to those parts of the system, which me average person could get to. And that would not include the privileged spots that they would need to really execute their payloads. And so if you started uh, doing things like that, if you have, I mean, people like phishing is a big thing. So many passwords are stolen. True enough. But if you have two-factor authentication, just stealing the password is not enough. You also need to, um, you know, get the other authentication form. And the two-factor authentication, besides preventing the phishing things, would prevent, you know, uh, password guessing, would prevent 
a variety of other ways where you, you gain the credentials of, of an individual um, to, to try to gain access to the system. So I think if we turn our attention to what we can do within our system to make it a really difficult terrain for the attack to traverse, we do have a chance of winning and we are not doomed. I don't actually see any progress toward toward that model. So how do we, you know, I, how do we get people to to change the way that we have done this historically and do it a different way? Yeah, and I think there's uh, part of it is a is a timeline thing. I mean, we in SignWave are trying to get people to do that by investing companies that do exactly this that I described. But yeah. um, you know, and so making sure that systems like that that solutions like that actually survive in the marketplace, I think, is one phase of um, of enabling the shift to this mindset. I think you know the, the realization of things that you just said. The more we invest in security, the more we still get the, the breaches happen. People are beginning to realize there's something uh, fundamentally wrong uh, with the security marketplace and uh, the solutions it's providing. I'm you know, optimistic that uh, over time, people will move to this. I, the, the analogy I use in my head is um, a number of years ago, perimeter defense was the whole story, right? You keep people from getting in. It's your perimeter that you protect. And all of the products were addressing that problem. Uh, while that was going on, though, the um, notion of, of endpoint protection um, evolved, and um, that that is a way more robust uh, way of addressing um, cyber threats. And although it took a number of years to unseat the perimeter protection paradigm, um, now I think there are a few people who say, you know, a broad system perimeter is the the way to defend your system. People are talking about moving the perimeter, you know, to the individual piece of data and so on. The idea is that the actual castle walls are, are not a solution that's going to work. And so I do think over time, the success of, of newer types of technology becomes more apparent, but it's it takes years. It's not a fast thing. And one of the things that, that troubles me is there's also the case that uh, many of the people who have made investment in cybersecurity um, you know, as you say, it's a ton of money. Um, they don't, there isn't a graceful way for them to say, oh, let's tear this out and and do this new thing, which is, is you know, better in, in this important way. With this, the, you know, there's this whole sunk cost mentality. There's a reputation uh, cost associated with, with suggesting that, you know, things have moved to a, a different place now. The size of um, invested solutions is getting in the way, is, is making it more difficult for new solutions to break through. That said, I think, uh, you know, again, over time, you know, if you just made an investment, you're not likely to change it. But if you made an investment three years ago, you might be looking again, um, you know, to for a different type of solution. And so I think we have to be a little patient, which is something, unfortunately, difficult to afford right now. But I, I do think the paradigms do change uh, over time to, to get to better places. You're right. Okay. Let me ask you, from my view, so I was a CISO six years ago, and, and the, my world six years ago was very, very simple compared to the technology map, if you will, today's mm -hmm. world. And I'm pretty sure that I was working 12 hours a day six years ago. So I look at the current complexity of the environment from a CISO point of view, and I 
I'm pretty convinced that none of the folks I know who run these things for a living have a, let me be generous, a safe understanding of, or an effective understanding of the technology that they're overseeing mm-hmm. or how to implement it properly or what the standards you know should look like or anything about the adjacent impacts of rolling out another layer or a, a new cloud, hybrid cloud instance that's going to be built around Kubernetes containers, which I think if I asked, you know, 10 folks that I know to, you know, who understands and can explain Kubernetes, I don't think I'm not going to see a show of hands, period. So mm-hmm. uh, from my point of view, the complexity is kind of killing us, but also there's this unwillingness to say, to raise your hand and say, hey, you know what, I <laughs> you want me to do this stuff, but I don't understand anything that we're doing, but digital transformation keeps pushing me because you keep saying, you know, serve the business units, you know, Mm -hmm. what does the CISO do? Well, I think there was, is a recognition of the importance of the role of the CISO that um, over time moved the CISO role up to a, you know, um, a C-suite kind of role, um, removed the CISO from the groups that were actually writing the software, implementing the network, managing the IT system, and put them in charge of their security fiefdom, which was divorced from the executing uh, parts of the company. I understand, you know, that, that this was done in a, a, a well-meant intention of giving security the, the consideration it, conser- it deserves. But the, I think unwanted side effect was it is that it really reduced the effectiveness of security solutions. The decisions were made by people who were not the people who were implementing um, the IT system. And, and there was, you know, it, you know, back and forth about, you know, what security doing to me now, rather than how can security help me implement this network in a way that's going to work for the company in, in, a, in a safer way. Similarly, developers, um, often the, the, there were code audits at the end of a process that only slowed them down. And so the security guys weren't seen as people who helped them build better code, but as guys who got in the way of their delivery dates. And I think that that separation of the security function from the software and hardware development and execution function um, is, is truly problematic and does need to change or the decisions will be made without a full understanding, as you said, of the the concerns of the business, of what needs to be done, of what these technologies really do, how they interact and so on. So so I think it, it really is worth um, rethinking uh, the structure of the CISO role and, and perhaps embedding more of it in, in the places um, where the system is implemented. The other thing about complexity, I do think that um, there's, there's not enough understanding of security architecture as opposed to security solutions and security orchestration. And um, I don't know uh, how uh, to make that a more central part of, of the, the CISO's uh, toolbox, but it's really, really important to pick your solutions in an architected way, to know how they interact, to know whether they're helping each other or hurting each other, um, to understand their performance impact when used together and, and, and all sorts of things like that. I actually haven't looked at 
too many school curricula or anything like that these days. But I, I would think that that there needs to be a, a increased emphasis as people are, are being educated and trained in the importance of architecting solutions rather than just deploying them. Yeah, I, I, everything you said is spot on. I one of the things that I do for ISMG is I run the the thing called the CyberEd.io uh, initiative, which is an online education you know platform. And there's no <laughs> there's no paucity of those. I mean, there must be seventy competitors mm-hmm. in that space. But we're different, and we're different because we we've looked at it from. Um, from a learning path point of view and like built coursework within multiple learning paths that relate to the specific roles that are in, you know, real in the real world. And from a point of view of a practical way, if you will, to allocate uh, responsibility, you know, tied loosely to the NIST framework. And we have a Pretty strong emphasis on zero trust because we're, you know, I think one of the original proponents of zero trust in the market. And you had described in the answer to your, our last question, I think, basically a zero trust approach when you're talking about micro segmentation and mm-hmm. and so forth. And so the answer to the question, you know, you just suggested is from my point of view, since I couldn't find you a CISO who could tell me or you what the topology of his network is or her network mm-hmm. is today. Well, why don't we just rip it all out and start over, right? Why don't we start over with a zero trust strategy and a, and a zero trust reference architecture and then build to the business requirement from that point forward? Yeah, I mean, if we could pause time to to get things right and then and then start over, that would be a fabulous idea. Um, I I did. I mean, which is a company where we're considering for investment now at SineWave, that is a zero trust micro segmentation company, and their approach to this, which I happen to love, is that the system is what it is. So the zero trust technology has to bear the burden of learning what the system is, not by asking people, but by querying the system. And then um, can lay out the policies, given this understanding of what the system is and what the the business rules are that do come from people. And I think there's there's something to be said. And again, this this goes with the, the theme of resilience a little bit. And technologies understanding that they're not delivering into a blank slate world and figuring out how they can accommodate the existing mess and still add their value to to provide a reasonable solution. Um, it does, you know, it, it does make the development of the technology harder, but I, I think that's a very, very responsible way to do your design of novel tech is to recognize the world you're delivering into and, and not assume that it has the characteristics you need for your solution to be viable. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm conscious of the time, uh, Pat. So maybe our final question here might deal with uh, the connection between uh, your current business, the VC investment model, uh, cybersecurity as a market, and then the government's role, if you will, having spent you know 13 years with the Department of Defense, you have a, I'm sure, a rich mm-hmm. appreciation for the realities mm-hmm. of of government. And what do you think? 
Yeah, so I think the government has some important uh, roles to play in the cybersecurity marketplace. I think the government should be the source of guidance. And, you know, you mentioned in this framework earlier, I think that's probably the most recent um, source of guidance. The executive order on that calls for zero trust is, is another important one. Um, where I think the government has fallen a little short is that guidance is not as accessible and implementable as um, uh, many uh, enterprises need it to be. And, and there's good reason for that. You know, the government has these fairness requirements. They can't pick a technology. They can't pick a company as a winner. And so necessarily that makes the, the descriptions of this guidance be so high level that's hard for people to get their heads around. And so I think trying to figure out a way that you can actually make this advice more actionable while still maintaining the need for fairness and not to stifle innovation by picking a solution when a newer one might be uh, better later or down the road. So I think that that has to be thought through by either the government making the the advice more actionable or perhaps some other organizations like your own providing uh, interpretations uh, that, that people can get their heads around. There is another big role that the government plays forensically. There's a big role the government plays in understanding the attack space, particularly for advanced persistent threats. And all of these roles are important to inform what I think is the commercial space is going to solve this problem for America, for you know, American companies, for all companies and um, and agencies. I don't think this is something where uh, the government can invent particular solutions and deploy them out. We actually, uh, when I was at the agency doing research, we we needed to work through commercial partners to get solutions into the mainstream um, without, um, you know, mandating solutions. So I, I think the government um, is, is in some ways hampered by its own rules. I think the government people are extremely smart, though. And if we can figure out a way to get their idea space uh, translated into the implementation space of the commercial world. I, I think that's important. That's part of you know what we're trying to do in SineWave too is build these bridges between uh, the government thinking and the commercial implementation that that helps companies be successful. Yeah, sure. Second part of that question before we close: In the last twenty years, what job or what role gave you the most satisfaction? Um, so my last job at the government was heading up the Trusted Systems Research Group, which was the Cybersecurity or Information Assurance Research Group. And I am convinced that is the best job in the government. The problem space is fabulous. Uh, the people are brilliant and hardworking. The creativity level is high. And uh, I, I just loved it. You know, it was a kind of job where as an executive, you could actually execute by brainstorming, right? It wasn't one of these things, you know, very rule-based, bean counting uh, kind of a job. So that was by far my favorite job. And um, yeah, I mean, that not count, sine wave is just a completely different beast. I was assuming you meant of my government jobs. Yeah, yeah. Well, of any of those jobs. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, the venture capital job is very different than that, but great. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time out, Pat, to you know sit with us for half an hour. For me, it was great and uh, informative. And if you'd like to do it again, I'd like to do it again. We can probe further into some of these areas, and maybe end of first quarter or so next year, we can we can. Sounds good. Sounds good. Thank you again for having me, and uh, appreciate it. 
Yeah, sure, sure. I appreciate your uh, your cooperation here with us, and and thank you to our listeners as well for spending a half an hour of their day with us. And hopefully, it was uh, equally interesting to you guys. And until next time, I'm your host Steve King signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at Cyber Theory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.